Well, good evening. Thank you so much for letting me be here with you this evening. It is a great privilege. I think uh, Carl was thinking of Nick Wilburn when he talked about the foremost scholar of Southern Presbyterian history. It's certainly not me, uh, but it is my privilege uh, to be with you and to open up uh, to you uh, the life of Thomas Smythe. Uh, looking forward to open up the Word of God uh, with you tomorrow, uh, Lord's Day morning and evening. But uh, this, uh, this, morning, this evening we do to look at uh, this glorious figure. I, I do bring greetings from Pear Orchard Presbyterian Church. Uh, and we, we sent to you Steve and Wendy Wilkinson. So, uh, you know Steve, one of your elders. And uh, so we're looking forward. He's not here, unfortunately, this weekend. But we're going to try to get together on, on Monday night. So looking forward to reconnecting uh, with him. Uh, well, uh, so uh, many of you, well, let me ask this question. How many of you, raise your hand, how many of you have heard of Thomas Smythe before you just heard Carl mention him? How many hands? Okay. So how many of you have never heard of Thomas Smythe? Raise your hand. All right, good. Okay. Not good, but good. Um, uh, <laughs> So today, tonight, you will never be able to say that you've never heard of Thomas Smythe. You'll be able to leave here and say that you've, you've heard of him. You've, you've surely heard uh, here at this congregation of, of the big four, right? James Henley Thornwell, uh, Robert Louis Dabney, uh, Benjamin Morgan Palmer, uh, and of course, John Lafayette Gerardo. Providentially, three of those big four of the 19th century Southern Presbyterians were from the state of South Carolina. But there are many other names uh, that uh, I wish you could know. One of the reasons why I started Log College Press was to to, to make the, uh, the, the knowledge of these Southern Presbyterians and Northern Presbyterians uh, uh, just grow. And uh, we, uh, I wanted to do for the American Presbyterians what Banner Truth did for uh, the, the English and Scottish Puritans, because it seems that, it seems that we know uh, our, our English and Scottish forebears even better uh, than we know our own American forebears. And so names like John Layton Wilson, another South Carolinian, uh, William Swan Plummer, who taught here in South Carolina, John Bailey Adger, also from Charleston, uh, Daniel Baker, Charles Colcock Jones, Stuart Robinson, Thomas Ephraim Peck, uh, Moses Drury Hogue, Robert Jefferson Breckenridge, and George Howe, and many others. Uh, these are the names that, that are uh, lesser known, and yet uh, they are uh, so important in our own history as American Presbyterians, and they have so much to offer. They wrote so many uh, wonderful things, and so uh, I hope that tonight, as we look at Thomas Smythe, a, a South Carolinian, a Charlestonian uh, by way of Ireland and, Ireland and Princeton Seminary, uh, you'll come away uh, not only with a knowledge of him, uh, but also hopefully uh, a knowledge of God's word. Uh, we, I see the outline that's here uh, in uh, in the, the, your notes, I, I was telling Carl, I know that one page of manuscript in a sermon is 10 minutes. I have no idea uh, how many uh, pages of manuscripts is 10 minutes in a lecture. I don't get to do many lectures like this. So I doubt that, that we'll be following that outline, but hopefully we'll get uh, at least to point one and point three. Um, so uh, I do want to give you a biographical sketch, and then I, I want to try to move into our theme for uh, the weekend, two-handed theology, using an example that Thomas Smythe himself gives us in his autobiographical notes. I, I forgot to bring this book, Autobiographical Notes by Thomas Smythe. It's about 900 pages, uh, and I, I must say I've not read all 900, uh, even in preparation for a biographical sketch. I came to this topic a little too late in the game to be able to read all 900 uh, and yet, uh, it's filled with his letters, filled with his own reflections, filled with uh, reflections of others on uh, Smythe and his life and his ministry. And so I commend it to you. You can find it on the Log College Press website for free uh, under the Thomas Smythe page. Uh, so let's start with his early life. Uh, if you've ever uh, enjoyed reading comic books or comic book uh, movies, uh, th then surely you enjoy the origin stories, right, of these superheroes. Uh, and whenever we think about our, our Southern Presbyterian, uh, American Presbyterian forefathers, uh, each one of them has his own origin story. Uh, and it's as we get to know those origin stories that we really uh, recognize that they were men. They were, they were women uh, just like us, right? And so here, as we think about Thomas Smythe, uh, we see that his origin story is pretty fascinating in its detail. Uh, he was born in Belfast, Ireland, June 14, 1808. He was the eighth of 12 children uh, born to Samuel and Anne McGee Smythe. They had six girls and six boys, uh, eight of whom uh, survived childhood, six boys and two of the girls. Uh, Thomas's dad was 30 and his mom was 21 when they married. And when Thomas was born, uh, they were 45 and 36. Now, interestingly, uh, Samuel changed his name, his last name, from S-M-Y-T-H to S-M-I-T-H, uh, because the Y was giving him trouble. I imagine, like Cangelosi, he was having to spell it 
a lot of times. And uh, he said, look, let's just make this simple. We're going to change it to an I. Uh, so Thomas Smythe, Thomas Smythe was known as Thomas Smith until 1837, uh, when he changed it at a general assembly because of another Thomas Smith who happened to be there. So to prevent confusion, he changed the name. So I asked Carl, I said, do South Carolinians pronounce S-M-Y-T-H as Smith? Right? Have I been saying it wrong all my life? He said, no, we call it Smythe. So we might be all wrong because it was Smith at some point, right? At least, but maybe the Irish pronounce Smith as Smythe. Who knows? Uh, so we're going to call him Thomas Smythe because that's what Carl said. Uh, so uh, Thomas grew up in a Christian home. His dad was a ruling elder in a Presbyterian church when he was born. His mom was a, a godly woman in every way, though uh, she struggled with many afflictions, much physical weakness. And so did Thomas. Thomas was sickly as a child. Uh, his, uh, his father uh, said this uh, of, of him and to him, uh, that there was no cure for Thomas uh, but a plaster of earth, that is a band-aid of earth, that is a grave. Thomas writes, I was the weakling of the flock, so weakly as not to be expected to live. I was born during the time of my mother's failed health. My mother could not nurse me, and my wet nurse did not do me justice. I therefore grew up sickly and dwarfed, a feeble child and a delicate boy. And so because of his, his frail health, uh, he spent a lot of time with his mom. He, he grew up, like his mother, to be a reader. He tells us that he loved to read fairy tales and ghost stories, and Robinson Crusoe was his favorite book growing up. He was always one of the smartest boys in his class. Uh, he attended a, a classical high school connected to Queens College in Belfast. Uh, through his first 17 years... His family was wealthy. His father uh, was in a grocery and commission and tobacco manufacturing business. Uh, so he was a, a businessman. Uh, and so uh, first 17 years of, of Thomas Smythe's life, uh, he grows up in a, a very comfortable household, a very affluent household there in Belfast. But in 1825, everything changed. Thomas is 17 years old. Uh, his father is 62. And, and if you know uh, much about uh, you know, the history of, of, of British Isles and Europe in the early 19th century, there were wars. Uh, and through those wars, uh, many of the foreign businesses that Samuel had been doing business with, they failed. And eventually, uh, that caught up with him. And so in, in 1825, uh, he went bankrupt. And it appeared that Thomas was going to have to stop going to school, stop his studies, in order to help provide for the family. Uh, but his mother, when she recognized that, that this was about to happen, even a, a merchant came and said, look, Thomas, quit school and come and, and work with me. His mother said this to Thomas, Thomas, if you would rather pursue your studies and go on, I will work myself, if needful, to secure your necessary expense. And so, of course, as you can imagine, what an impact that had upon Thomas. But as we see from the history of his life, what an impact that choice that his mother made had on the kingdom of God, had on the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in 1827, he enters Belfast College, and it was during uh, his sophomore year at the age of 20 uh, when his religious impressions deepened. And he says that he found Christ and was found of Christ in peace. Early in his life, his father had left the Presbyterian church. His father told him it had become uh, degenerate, uh, both in doctrine and in discipline. So his father had become a Congregationalist uh, there in Ireland. And so when Thomas is finally converted by the Lord's grace, he unites himself to a Congregationalist church. And when his desire to go into ministry uh, came into full blossom, he looked to the dissenting academies uh, for seminary. And he was admitted to Highbury College in London. So how did an Irishman uh, studying for the ministry in London end up in South Carolina? Well, I'm glad you asked. Uh, when he gets to London, he seriously considers uh, going onto the mission field, but unfortunately, his frail uh, health, his frail constitution prevented it. Uh, so he begins focusing on the pastorate. Uh, in God's providence, several things happen after his first year in seminary. Uh, his parents, who remember had gone bankrupt, uh, they're struggling financially, they decided to follow one of their older sons uh, to America, to Vincennes, Indiana, to go and to live with them here in America. So Thomas is going home uh, back to Belfast to say goodbye to his parents. When he arrives, a letter arrives also in the mail telling him uh, that a friend from school uh, back in London had been brought up on charges of intoxication and visiting the theater and other improper places, and that Thomas was implicated in his 
actions. Now, Thomas knew that he had not done anything wrong. He knew that the, the charges against him uh, were, were false. Uh, and yet his, his character had been stained. And what made matters worse was that a lady to whom he was engaged refused to see him until the matters were cleared up. This led, as you might imagine, to the breaking of their engagement, that she would not trust uh, the word of Thomas. Uh, and the whole matter leads Thomas to a dark depression. Listen to what he writes. He says, I gave myself to grief. My friend and exemplar had betrayed me, while my own bosom companion, this woman to whom he had been engaged, to whom I'd revealed everything and desired to love beyond all others in every situation, she had forsaken me. My hopes and prospects were wholly blighted. The world to me was a blank. Darkness covered the face of the whole earth. I thought I should never again feel willing to live or capable of enjoyment. So that's where he's at. Right, here he is. He's a first-year seminary student going into his second year. His parents are about to leave. Uh, his, his engagement is broken off. He's, his character's been stained. If he goes back, he's going to have to answer to all these different charges. It's, it's not going to, to be a pleasant experience. And so, through these circumstances, he uh, decides that, that the best course of action is for him to leave with his parents and to go to America. He actually goes before them in August of, of 1830 with a younger sister because he needed to get there to figure out what I'm going to do with my life now. Uh, his uh, brother uh, was there in New Jersey, another brother, and, and insisted that he uh, go to Princeton Seminary. So when they finally arrive in America a month later on the boat, think of that, 1830, uh, on a boat from Ireland to America, took a month, all right? Uh, he comes to New Jersey. Uh, he joins the Presbyterian Church in Patterson, New Jersey. He comes under the care of Newark Presbytery, and he joins the senior class of Princeton Seminary. So here he is, he's finishing seminary, he graduates uh, in, in a year, uh, he, some friends and, and he decide we're going to be evangelists uh, down in Tallahassee, Florida. And so they are ordained as evangelists uh, with a commission from the, the General Assembly's Board of Missions in October of 1831. But before they leave for Tallahassee, a letter arrives at Princeton Seminary from Second Presbyterian Church in Charleston, South Carolina. They are looking for a young man to supply their church. Well, Dr. Archibald Alexander and Dr. Samuel Miller, uh, two leading lights in, in early American Presbyterian and certainly in Princeton Seminary, they agree that Thomas is the man for the job. And so Thomas gets on a boat. He sails for South Carolina. He arrives on November 12th, 1831. He's taken in by a man named James Adger. James Adger is also a fellow Irishman. He happens to be an incredibly wealthy man. Uh, by some reports, he was at this point the fourth wealthiest man in all of America. Right? He had a, a whole fleet of steamers right, that would uh, buy and sell goods. He was a merchant. Uh, he had connections at every large port. Uh, and he takes in Thomas into his own home when he arrives at Second Pres. Uh, it also turned out that, that James Adger, not only did he have wealth, not only did he have the Irish connection... Uh, but James Adger had a beautiful daughter, right? And so here is Thomas living uh, in the Adger home, and he meets uh, James Adger's daughter, Margaret, by April 1832, right? So he's gotten there in November 1831. By April of 1832, uh, he has become the stated supply of Second Presbyterian Church, and he has been, become engaged to Margaret. Uh, he, uh, his brother-in-law, John Bailey Adger, how many of you have ever heard of John Bailey Adger before? Anybody's heard that name? Does anyone know anybody with the last name of Adger in South Carolina any longer? Wow. Uh, so there, I don't know if that means there are no Adgers in South Carolina or they just haven't made their way to the upcountry uh, yet. Uh, but John Bailey Adger, uh, who becomes himself a leading uh, Southern Presbyterian, uh, he tells us in his book, My Life and Times, a wonderful biography or autobiography uh, about uh, South Carolina Presbyterianism and, and early Southern American Presbyterianism. He tells us that when, jo when Thomas asked Margaret to marry him, uh, she was planning on being a missionary with uh, John Bailey in Armenia. And so Margaret's response to Thomas when he asked her to marry him is, wait, I'm, I'm going to the mission field with my brother uh, John Bailey. And, he, and Thomas says, well, that'll be no problem. I'll come with you. Right? She had already turned down 
uh, the engagement of John Layton Wilson, another uh, famous Southern Presbyterian missionary who was in, a missionary in the Gabon in Africa. Uh, and uh, tradition says that she received 35 marriage proposals. Now, was it because of her, her beauty? Was it because of her father's wealth? <laughs> who knows, right? Uh, but she had turned on John Layton Wilson, but finally through God's providence, through Thomas's art of persuasion, whatever it might be, uh, she finally says, yes, I will marry you, Thomas Smythe. And so uh, they marry a very short engagement, as you can imagine, with him living in the house with them. Uh, they're married July 9th, uh, and uh, they don't end up going on the mission field with uh, John. Of course, I'm sure his health had something to do with this. And yet, as Carl alluded to earlier, listen to what John Bailey Adger writes about Thomas Smythe. He says, if the South Carolina Senate has ever been since 1833 peculiarly alive in some degree to the claims of the foreign mission work, but oh, how small that degree. But if they've ever been alive to these claims, I here record what will be generally acknowledged by those who know best that this has been due through almighty grace in very large measure to the missionary zeal of Dr. Thomas Smythe. From the foundation of the Southern Board of Foreign Missions of the Senate of South Carolina and Georgia and the Senate of Tennessee in 1833, so this, this Board of Foreign Missions, Thomas was the chairman for 26 years until 1859. Some of his most influential writings during his lifetime were on the topic of missions. One of the, the titles that, that I published uh, b before uh, handing over the reins to Greenville Seminary uh, of Log College Press, one of the titles that we published was uh, The Mission of Parenting, uh, a, a book that, uh, a sermon that, that Thomas uh, preached uh, to parents how to raise children who love missions. This man loved missions, and he wanted to pass down that love of missions even to the children of his church. Uh, there's a, a commemorative discourse that you can read uh, by the pastor who uh, took the reins of Second Pres after Thomas stepped down, uh, and he says this, if love to Jesus was his crowning excellence, his missionary spirit was the crowning form of this excellence. If the former, his love to Jesus, furnished the material, the latter determined the position and the shape of the crown. No theme so absorbed his large, expansive heart or developed and exalted the mighty forces of his intellect as that of missions. Right, so here's a man who loved missions and supported missions, not only abroad, right, but as we'll mention in a moment, as Carl has already alluded to, at home, church planning and bringing the gospel to the lost. So let's talk about Thomas and Margaret. They had nine children, six survived, three boys and three girls. In 1837... Right? They're, they're married in 1832, so in 1837, at their, around their five-year anniversary, uh, their first two children, daughters, ages four and two, die within a week of each other of scarlet fever. Right? This leaves them with a six-month-old son, James. Uh, their fourth child, a son named Augustine, he also dies in 1841 at 11 months. Uh, not surprisingly, uh, one of Thomas's most beloved books was entitled Solace for Bereaved Parents, written in 1846. Uh, we so take for granted, don't we, uh, the, the, the marvels of, of modern medicine, uh, where so few of our children uh, die in childbirth. Uh, so few of our wives uh, and our ladies die in childbirth. They understood. You've, I'm sure you've been in, in cemeteries and you've seen all the small uh, tombstones, all the small uh, gravestones there, and all the, the infant deaths, all the young child death. Uh, they understood suffering uh, in a way that thankfully uh, many of us do not have to experience. Uh, so here is uh, Thomas and Margaret, their fifth child. Another boy is also named Augustine, and, and he survives. As from 14, 1844 to 1849, they have four more children, three girls and a boy, all of whom survived. And so you think about this, this young couple uh, getting married through their 20s. They're losing children. Uh, on top of all the issues with, with, with church and denomination that, that Thomas is having to deal with, he, doesn't re he, he receives a, a permanent call from Second Pres in the fall of 1832, but he doesn't accept it. You heard Carl say he tried to, to get out of it. He didn't want to accept this call uh, for two years. And here were some of his reasons. I'm young, he said. I'm inexperienced. I'm, I'm 24. Why do you want me to be your pastor? 
He, he knew that his wife, as a member of the church, having grown up there, uh, it might be wise if they served somewhere else uh, first. He was concerned that the climate of South Carolina, again, before AC and, and all the modern conveniences we enjoy, that climate wouldn't suit him. He was concerned about the, the large size of the church building. Carl, have you been to the church building? I've never been there, uh, but evidently uh, it, it was, uh, he had to, to have it uh, rearranged and, and, and renovated several times because, again, there's no microphones, right? They're having to project their voice in large rooms, and uh, there were certain ways that the windows would blow, and he said that it was, it was fit only to, to cause people to fall asleep, essentially, right? While the preacher, people already want to fall asleep when we're preaching, and Thomas realized that just the way you built this building is going to put people to sleep. Uh, and so he, he didn't want to be the pastor for that. He also realized that the pastor before him had set a very high expectation of pastoral visitation. But Thomas's convictions about how much time he needed to be spending studying for sermons made him realize, if, if I could be your pastor, I'm not going to meet your expectations. You're not going to be you know, happy with me. You're not going to want me to be here. And so he, he put them off, put them off uh, time and time again about accepting this permanent call uh, from the church. Finally, two years later, December 17th, 1834, he is installed as their pastor. He would remain their pastor until 1870, uh, three years before his death. Although, as Carl said, he had lots of opportunities to leave. Dr. Thornwell wanted him to come and teach at Columbia. Dr. Hodge wanted to come and teach at Princeton. He, he tells us, as, as Carl read, he wanted to leave Charleston frequently, but listen to why he never did. He writes this, I always felt that providence had not yet opened the door and that I ought not to climb out some other way and leave a post of danger and of duty where he had set me for the defense of the gospel as a standard bearer of the church's banner and her season of emergent strife. I have with more and more firmness concluded to remain and live and die with my people unless providence opened up a wide and effectual door or forcibly and fairly ejected me. What a beautiful uh, view of calling uh, and of God's providence in our call. So Thomas was a faithful expositor uh, of the word of God at Second Press. Uh, I, I wish I had time to talk more about uh, his preaching ministry. Uh, I will say one of the funniest parts of his life and ministry uh, is that like many preachers, he tended to preach too long. Uh, and there was a speaking tube connected to the pulpit from the choir loft. And the violinist would speak in that speaking tomb to let him know when he was going too long. Right? And he would ignore her. And so there would be older gentlemen in the, in the front rows who would throw their hat into the pew to say it's time to stop. Eventually his children would make hand signs to him. And he ignored them all. Right? So if tomorrow someone throws their hat in the pew, I will know in the aisle, I'll know that it is time to stop. So Thomas Smythe, a godly preacher, a godly pastor of this growing church in Charleston, South Carolina, but he also was a man who engaged fully in the controversies of his time. The 1830s in particular were a season of controversy, but his, his engagement with controversy didn't stop even when he got out of the 1830s and moved into what he called his, his season of, of hard study and frequent publication. Let's start with the 1830s. That was uh, the, the time when the old school, new school controversy was going on. His presbytery, the Charleston Union Presbytery, uh, was divided over these issues. What were the issues? Well, uh, there, there were multiple issues. Uh, there was an ecclesiastical component related to how missions was to be done. Uh, there was a theological component related uh, to Pelagianism. All right, the, the view of man, that man is not sinful, that Adam's sin has not affected him, uh, related to regeneration and the necessity of regeneration uh, for faith, related to man's ability or inability, uh, related to the sovereignty of God. There was also a part of this debate over abolitionism and, and slavery. Uh, Thomas Smythe, because of his love for uh, all mankind, black and white, because of his uh, belief, he writes a book called uh, On uh, the, the Unity of the Human Races, one of his most important uh, books that he writes. He believed that we are all descended right, from one man, Adam. Uh, there is, he wouldn't have put it this way, maybe, but there is one human race. right? And so because of his views, uh, even though he was a supporter of slavery, yet he had a high view uh, of uh, the humanity of the slave. And so uh, he was considered in his day and age uh, something of an abolitionist. 
Uh, He was uh, looked down upon and assailed uh, because of his views. As he uh, founded the Anson Street Mission, which became Zion Presbyterian Church, uh, which both John Bailey Adger and John Lafayette Gerardo uh, were uh, engaged in pastoring, uh, the, the, the founding of this church, the planning of this church, uh, led many in South Carolina, again, to call him an abolitionist. And so he's, he's dealing with all these issues, uh, both in the church and in the community. As he begins to, to write polemically, to write and engage in some of the controversies in the early 1840s, he begins to um, find himself in hot water uh, with the Anglicans in Charleston. I'm not from South Carolina, but raise your hand, is, is Anglicanism still a, a large uh, part of, of Charleston, South Carolina's life? I see some heads nodding. Right? Well, it was that way all the way back in the 1800s. Right? And so he writes these books, Apostolical Succession, Presbytery and Not Prelacy, Ecclesiastical Republicanism. All of these writing against the Anglo-Catholic Oxford tracts of the 1840s or the 1830s, writing against the Anglicans there in Charleston. His, his family and his friends said, look, Thomas, you're very young. You're in your early 30s. It's not wise for you to engage uh, with these leaders of the Anglican church. Uh, and so uh, he continued all the more. He said, no, these are important things. We need to show how Presbyterianism is biblical. Right? We need to show you uh, the, the whole uh, of Charleston, right? why we are Presbyterians, why we believe uh, this is what is taught in God's word. He also engaged in debate within the Presbyterian church, intramural debate. Uh, interestingly, uh, he was on the opposite side uh, of James Henley Thornwell and eventually his own brother-in-law, John Bailey Adger, uh, over many issues. The call to the ministry, uh, ruling elders, uh, whether we should have committees or boards. Uh, he was more aligned with Charles Hodge and the Princeton men than he was with his own uh, countrymen, the folks from his own state. Uh, he uh, has a, there's, there's a funny portion of a letter from John Bailey Adger to Thomas Smythe written in 1860 in which Adger says this, I'm reviewing your two articles on the eldership. I shall do it honestly and earnestly, but kindly, I hope, and in a way that cannot hurt your feelings, except as I may succeed in showing you to be in the wrong. By the way, he says, there is a very striking similarity of thought and even expression in Dr. Hodge's last article, the one on Presbyterianism, and also in his speeches to the assembly, to some of your paragraphs. He appears to borrow from you very freely. Unfortunately, so far as I am able to judge, it is just where you yourself are wrong that he has adopted your ideas and your very words. Now, this is his brother-in-law writing to him. And I've often wondered, as I've, I've thought about uh, since that day back in uh, 2001, hearing from, from Carl and, and learning and reading more, what was it like for Thomas Smythe to have in his own family men that he disagreed with. You go read volume four uh, of James Henley Thornwell's uh, collected writings and you'll see in the appendix, right, you'll see Thomas Smythe's writings because the things that that James Henley Thornwell wrote about were engaging with Thomas Smythe about the ruling elder, about uh, boards and and the way that missions should be conducted. What was it like for Smythe to to be in South Carolina, to be in the Adger family and know that, that everyone was against him even in his own state? Uh, fortunately, his granddaughter, Louisa Chavez Stoney, who compiled his autobiographical works, answers that question for us. And she writes this, Dr. Smythe had been a lonely man in his life in the church in many ways. His brothers-in-law differed with him on some important points. The eldership discussion with Dr. Adger was just the beginning. Almost entirely cut off from his own brothers and sisters, the doctor felt his isolation keenly. And yet in spite of this intramural disagreement, and, and when you read their writing, you think, how could they stand each other, right? How could they even talk to each other? I think there was something about the way they wrote much more freely, uh, perhaps, than we do, uh, with much more uh, uh, willingness to, to disagree uh, vehemently with one another, and yet to still have a great respect for one another. Uh, he writes this about Thornwell in 1859. His severely analytical mind carries him to positions and holds him there and makes him regardless of all consequences. But wherever his head is, his heart is right and his charity warm. And though I've always differed with him on some points, though increasingly fewer, he says, I've always loved him as a man, admired him as profound, able, and eloquent, and reverenced him as a Christian. He loved Thornwell, even though they clearly disagreed about so many things. 
Uh, he loved him so much that he was the one who preached his installation sermon in 1860 as co-pastor of First Pres Columbia, uh, two years before uh, Thornwell died. And if you uh, are studying for the ministry, if you are an elder of the church, if you are a Christian who loves uh, this time period, I commend to you uh, the uh, installation sermon of Smythe uh, to Thornwell and to his uh, co-pastor there in First Pres Columbia. Thornwell himself says of Smythe that no one had a kinder heart and a more forgiving spirit. Uh, he was granted a doctorate of, uh, of, uh, of, a doctorate of divinity degree in 1843 at the age of 35 by Princeton Seminary. Uh, he was, uh, at this time, you had to have sort of two meetings of, of the board to, to be granted this degree. Uh, you know, one where the name would, they put your name forth and nominate you, and then the, the second meeting they would vote on you. Uh, but that policy was unanimously suspended for Smythe. That was how, how uh, wise, how smart, how uh, intellectual an author and a thinker uh, he was. Uh, one of the questions that comes up with Smythe is, why don't we know more about him? Why don't we have his writings reprinted? Uh, some of you may know Barry Wall. He lives here in Greenville, uh, and he's a wonderful historian of Presbyterianism. If you've never seen his website, Presbyterians of the Past, I commend that to you as well. Uh, and and he, his argument is that the reason why Smythe's writings, his 10 volumes, if, do you have his writings? If you go into Carl's office, there are these 10 large volumes. Uh, and the reason why those volumes have not been reprinted is in part because in his will, rather than him publishing uh, these volumes sort of for the market, right, for uh, people to, to buy and to sell, he, he left money in his will only for publishing them and giving them uh, to libraries, to colleges, to the poor. So they were never really out on the market. They never really were published for the masses. And therefore, uh, they weren't sort of in the used book market, uh, Barry Wall says. So that's a, a valid reason. The other reason why I think uh, we don't know about Smythe and his, his uh, writings as much is because he was on the losing side of so many of those intramural debates within American and Southern Presbyterianism. Uh, and so as Southern Presbyterians uh, continued to, to move forward in their history, they didn't refer to Smythe's writings as much as they did to men like Thornwell uh, and Dabney. And so uh, Smythe becomes one that, that people just forget about, uh, right? And one of the, the things that I've learned uh, through my work with Log College Press is that I will be forgotten, right? You will be forgotten. Uh, people, uh, your great-grandchildren may not even know your first name, right? And that's okay. Uh, God is at work through you and in you and through your life in the lives of other people, as we see even here in Thomas Smythe. Um, ah, there's so many good stories. I've got to read this quote. Uh, Thomas Smythe loved uh, to, uh, to collect books. Uh, he had, at some point, uh, some estimates, 12,000, some 20,000 books in his library. He eventually sells his library to Columbia Seminary. Uh, but as he was nearing 40, uh, it was clearly a source of tension between him and his wife, Margaret. Uh, while he's on a trip to London, here's what she writes in a letter. Uh, let, let me just ask, men, women, have you ever thought about like the books you buy or the things you buy? I mean, has that ever come up in your house? Like, why do you keep buying books? Right. Fortunately, I'm married to a woman who loves to read. So that was one of the things that we sort of, we never get upset. Oh, you bought a book. Okay, that's great. Like, that's not a problem. But listen to what Margaret says to Thomas in a letter. He says, this addition to our house will involve us in expense in other ways. These three rooms will each require a carpet and other furniture. I must have another bedstead for the children and some articles for their room, which are essential and necessary. And then when we go to housekeeping, I don't see how we can avoid it. We must have more servants. If we bring Betsy and her two children home, we'll increase the size of our hominy pot. If we have a, 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 so large a house, we'll be expected to entertain more company. This you would like, so would I, if I had servants enough and money enough to buy all I need. I tell you all this now as a preface to a caution, not to involve yourself too deeply or inextricably in debt by the purchase of books and pictures. Of the last with the maps, we have enough now to cover all the walls, even of the new rooms. And the books are already too numerous for comfort in the study and the library. Sam is now busy carrying a war of extermination against the moths there, which have become very numerous and destructive. But I would enter a protest not only against books and pictures, but all other things not necessary and which can come under the charge of extravagance. Do be admonished and study to be economical you got to love that. 
right? Just the, 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 what a picture into their relationship. All these books, all these books. Why do we have more books? Um, but Thomas had a large library because he felt it was a calling, not just for himself, but for the younger pastors around him, for those who did not have as much. He didn't buy all of his books himself with his own money. He had a very wealthy father-in-law who bought him a lot of books. And so he saw, I've been placed in a very strategic place uh, to uh, have a library that is not just for me, but for uh, the men in our presbytery, and then eventually all the students who came to Columbia Seminary. Well, let's wrap up his life, and then I want to try to move uh, finally, briefly, into uh, our, the theme of our, our study. So, so uh, Smythe, as we mentioned earlier, uh, was always a frail man. Uh, his health was always an issue. He constantly bore the burden of physical pain. He writes this, I have often thought I could write a natural history of pain. I've known her from childhood. We have walked arm in arm, dwelt in the same house, been fellow lodgers in the same body, occupants in the same bed. Uh, he, uh, as soon as he moved to, to Charleston, he had uh, blood in the head, I guess serious headaches uh, that would be, and he went to Flat Rock, North Carolina to dunk his head in the frigid waters of that area, he says. Uh, he had constant severe pains in his, his lower extremities. Uh, the reason why he uh, resigned multiple times was because he was paralyzed. Uh, he had to preach uh, from a sort of a, a specially designed saddle-type seat in his pulpit. Uh, he had to walk with crutches. Uh, he uh, felt that he was um, unable to accomplish the task that he uh, was called to do, and yet the church continued to say, no, you're our pastor, no, we don't, we're not going to accept your resignation uh, because we love you and we, we love the ministry of the word from you. Uh, he uh, had this strict daily system, he says, of, of bodily gymnastics and rubbing down with glove and hands, with oil and hot water and cold water, ice itself over every part of the body every morning with regular times for intermission, for rest and a nap, for outdoor activity. Uh, he uh, eventually, it's not just his body that becomes paralyzed, his speech is paralyzed. And this is the thing that eventually leads to him resigning from the church because though he was able uh, through speech therapy to, to gain uh, speech back, yet it was not to his satisfaction that he was able to stand in a pulpit and preach God's word. Uh, and so eventually, uh, after uh, leaving Charleston during the Civil War uh, to, to, to preach in several different Methodist churches as sort of a circuit rider preacher uh, in the country um, of South Carolina, he comes back to Charleston, November uh, 1865, to a shell of a congregation, as you can imagine, a shell of his own former self. His voice, as I said, becomes paralyzed. He could never get it back to where he needed to be for preaching. He retires in November 1870. He dies in August of 1873 at the age of 65. And yet, as he writes at several points in, in his autobiographical works, he believed that he was immortal until his work was done. He believed that the Lord had him on this life uh, for a specified number of days, right? Psalm 139, all the days have been written in your book, Lord, before one of them came to be. And so he knew that he was immortal. He could not die. You probably know the great quote from Stonewall Jackson, I'm as, as, as safe in battle as in bed. Right? Because the Lord is sovereign. The Lord knows the days of my life. And so uh, Smythe believed he was immortal until his work was done. He also believed that great health was not necessary to great labor. The labor may be, may be different if you don't have great health. So in his case, he was a great writer. Uh, he was a voluminous writer. Uh, and yet uh, he knew uh, that it was impossible to remain stationary. You either are, are, are moving forward in your relationship with the Lord, moving forward uh, in uh, the work that God has called you to do, uh, or you're moving backwards. And so he believed, right, that his pain, uh, his suffering, uh, was a pathway. He, he writes this, The pathway of pain and weakness leads to the land of humiliation, and under the guidance of faith, it leads to humility, lowliness, hope, and heavenly-mindedness. And so through that pain, through his suffering, he knew the Lord was conforming him to the image of Jesus Christ, and he was committed to serving him until the Lord took him home. So... That's Thomas Smythe's life, a little bit about his ministry. And now I want us to think about our theme for uh, the, the weekend. Uh, you see it there, uh, two-handed theology. Two-handed theology. That phrase comes from uh, what I once heard a pastor say, and I'll say this again in the morning. Uh, he said this, every pastor, and I would add every Christian, needs two hands. On the one hand and on the other hand. Right? Every pastor needs two hands. On the one hand and on 
the other hand, what he means, what he meant, that pastor, and what Smythe even teaches us, what Thornwell teaches us, as you'll see here in a bit, uh, is that in the Christian life, uh, there are many areas of, of doctrine and practice where the answer to the question of, is this right or is that right? Is this true or is this true? The answer is actually yes. Right? There are uh, two things that we're called to affirm and hold on to in particular questions. Or we might say there are two things we're called to avoid, two extremes we're called to avoid. And we're called to, to walk that balance beam of truth right? that leads us away from the ditch on this side and away from the ditch on that side. I'm sure you can think of several examples. We'll be looking at them all day tomorrow. But uh, let me just uh, cite one. Uh, that uh, here, Here's one first that, that James Henley Thornwell gives us. He says, Presbyterians, because we recognize the distinction between the church and its essential elements and the mode of its external manifestation, right? the church in its essence and the church, the church in its external manifestation, we avoid the narrow and the exclusive spirit which would limit God's covenant to our own little household. We can find members of Christ's church beyond our own doors. But by contending at the same time that Christ has prescribed the model and conformity with which his people should be governed, we avoid the licentiousness which would give to man the same power and discretion in fixing ecclesiastical constitutions, which is granted to us in settling civil constitutions. And so Thornwell says we are consequently neither bigots on the one hand nor libertines on the other. We embrace in charity all who love Jesus Christ, but we testify in faithfulness against all who pervert the order of his house. And you get this, right? We say to our Baptist brethren, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we love you. We're, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, but we completely disagree with you, right, about church government and about baptism. Again, it's, it's a, a both and. Thomas Smythe, he got this. Listen to this quote. He says, the tendency of the human mind is to extremes. Man, by his fall, lost that perfection of wisdom which would ever have preserved him in the middle path, safe from the dangers of latitudinarianism or, or, you know, legal, or lawlessness, antinomianism on the one hand, and ultraism on the other. As it is, we find the human mind, like the pendulum, perpetually verging from one extreme to the other. Now, here's the irony. He writes that quote against James Henley Thornwell and his view of the call to the ministry, or excuse me, his view of, uh, of boards and committees. So isn't it funny, we all think we're in the middle, right? Have you ever noticed that? We all think that we're the ones walking the middle path, and you people over there have fallen off the, the cliff on that side, you people have fallen off the cliff on that side. That's an application for another day. Uh, but I want you to see and hear, and both in Thornwell and in Smythe, they, they recognize that, hey, in the Christian life, oftentimes we are having to uh, avoid the extreme over here and avoid the extreme over here. We're trying to walk this fine line of, of affirming, holding on with two hands to two different truths, right? That can also, or that, that can often, uh, uh, we can be tend to go from one extreme to uh, the other. And here, in our last few minutes, here is the, the thing that in my reading of Smythe stuck out to me, probably because I was thinking about this theme and topic already. Uh, the, the, the idea of ambition, Ambition. Again, if you look at Smythe's writings, you can see that he was an ambitious man. Ten large volumes of writing. Right? And yet he recognized that in his ambition, he didn't always walk that middle road. He didn't always uh, walk the, the, the middle path. But think about your life, your ministry, your labor, both your, your vocation your avocation, right? Your job and your calling in the church, your ministry, right? You have ambition. You have desire to accomplish things, right? You want to, to get something done. It may be something simple like, you know, tackling the pile of laundry or the pile of papers on your desk. It may be something bigger and, and grander in your family and your church and your workplace and your Christian life in the world. Do you have ambition? Right? And yet ambition is a double-edged sword. Because Why? It can so easily become all about self-promotion, self-aggrandizement, self-glorification. So is the answer to just get rid of ambition altogether? Or is the answer, as Smythe would point us to, to approach ambition in a two-handed way? Smythe, I won't read them now, but he has some beautiful quotes that speak of the, the necessity of ambition. You won't get anything done, he says, 
whether in the church or in your personal life, you will get nothing done without ambition. And when you know what you have the capability of doing and you don't do it, right? there is a woe is me and there is a humility that comes upon us when we realize that we have been gifted and called by God to do something and therefore we need that ambition to enable us to do what God has called us to do. Right? Jesus says, from everyone who has been given much, much will be required. And so Smythe says, in order to do the things that God has gifted and called us to do, we need a holy ambition. We need a holy desire that's able, that enables us to, to, to work through pain, to work through suffering, to work through all the opposition that often comes upon us. And yet, with ambition comes a danger. Listen to how Smythe puts it. He says, there is in this matter of ambition two extremes. Right? First, of, of thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought, but also, on the other hand, not thinking as highly as we should of ourselves, as God's instruments, fitted and prepared by his divine skill for his own purposes. We can slothfully excuse ourselves from the heat and the burden of the day. It's far easier, he says, to wipe tears of humility from the eye of weeping laziness than it is to wipe the rolling sweat drops from the furrowed brow of fevered labor. The full knowledge of just what is our true capacity, our right course, is a matter too high for our understanding. We can't attain to it. God alone can reveal this unto us. And yet, if left to ourselves, we will assuredly make shipwreck on Scylla or Charybdis. We will prostitute our talents to lust and laziness or to the honor that comes from man. Do you hear what Smythe is saying? In this thing called ambition, some people are, we might say, over-ambitious, ambitious to a fault, ambitious to a, a prideful fault. Other people are under-ambitious. They're not ambitious enough, right? They, they, they think too lowly of themselves and of the gifts that God has given them. And so we're, we're called to walk this middle path. We're called to find this balance. Smythe himself, as you can imagine, didn't struggle with laziness. He struggled with pride. And he tells us, he says, that my motives were pure and only pure in all that I wrote, I do not believe. I know not that there was anything purely unselfish in God glorifying and man loving about them. I know that I am naturally ambitious. From an early period, I had a desire to be distinguished, to be prominently and popularly useful and active. I know that all my teachers and pastors and friends, they saw the ways that I was growing. And they've had these high expectations for me. He says, in all this, there was pride and self-seeking vanity. Looking back now at my promptings, my preparations, my performances in the pulpit, I am sincerely filled with loathing and contempt of myself, with admiration and gratitude for the amazing forbearance and condescension of God and permitting such a one as I to serve him and in continuing such services so long and with such apparent acceptance. What a wonderful degree of self-knowledge, of humility, of honesty, of confession of sin, even about his best works. And so I, I would put it forth for you to kind of just a, a, a little bit of an appetizer for what we're going to think about tomorrow. Are you ambitious enough? Are you more ambitious than you ought to be? Are you less ambitious than you ought to be? Right? Where do you find yourself falling into this ditch? Smythe would say we are called by the grace of God to be as ambitious as the Lord has gifted and called us to be. Right, to strive with all our might, as Paul puts it, but in dependence upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Somewhere we are all on this line, all on this spectrum. And so I want to encourage you, if you find yourself falling into the ditch of laziness, right, to be ambitious. And if you find yourself falling into the ditch of pride, right, then check your heart. Recognize that, that pride, that, that arrogance, that self-reliance, that self-dependence. Right? But don't swing to the pendulum of, of not being ambitious, right? But swing to that pendulum back to the middle of, of saying, Lord, help me to be ambitious in a holy way, in a humble way, in an honest way. Well, I hope you can see there's much to learn from Smythe. I hope you've enjoyed uh, kind of walking through his life and, and getting this glimpse into how he thought even about his own uh, excellent uh, productions and works and the things that he did and how he saw sin in it, but even saw the Lord's work in it through his sin. 
Uh, again, I would uh, encourage you to, to spend some time reading uh, Smythe there at the Law College Press website. Uh, all of his 10 volumes are there for free. Uh, though read with discernment, remember that uh, he, he, his views on different things were not those followed by the Southern Presbyterian Church and even by our own PCA, uh, Book of Church Order and, and Standards. And yet, uh, as we read uh, the, the writings of Smythe, uh, there's so much there that can bless us, uh, that can be an encouragement to us. And so uh, now, you, now you cannot say that you've never heard of Thomas Smythe, right? And so when you go down to, to Charleston and you go visit Second Press, uh, you'll know and, and remember uh, how God used that man and used that church uh, for his name's sake. And may he continue to do that, uh, even through us, in all of the ways he's gifted us and given us those ambitions uh, to be uh, vessels of, of righteousness, vessels of, of change, uh, not only in, in, in the lives of other people, but in the, in the church at large and in this world. Uh, may I pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for the life and the legacy and the ministry of Thomas Smythe. Lord, there's so much more that we could say, so much more that you did with him and through him. Lord, we thank you that he was a man just like us, and yet you gifted him, you led him through pain and suffering, and you used him through all that for your glory and for the good of the church. Lord, we pray uh, that though he is dead, he would still speak. Lord, we ask that you would uh, continue to grow our knowledge of, of, of Thomas Smythe and all the men and women who ministered uh, in the church, who ministered in the, the body of Christ there in uh, the, the 19th century church, the southern church in particular, even here in South Carolina in particular. Uh, Father, would we glean and grow uh, from the writings of these men? Would we learn from their writings, Lord, what you would have us to learn even today? God, we thank you so much for the way that you are working through us in ways that we will never even know. Uh, Lord, and if we are forgotten, we ask that there would be times down the road where maybe centuries later, we would be remembered like Smythe has been remembered even tonight and that you would use our work, Father, for your name's sake, for your glory. Keep us, we pray, uh, from the ditch of pride, from the ditch of passivity and laziness. Keep us, Lord, holy and ambitious for you, for your glory, accomplishing those things you've called us to accomplish.